Jesus in Matthew 13 has kind of started teaching in parables. Um, Matthew 1 through 10, he lays out the evidence of Jesus being Messiah. 11 and 12, you see the responses to that. And then in chapter 13, Jesus starts teaching in parables. And the reason he teaches in parables is because he said, seeing they don't see and hearing they don't hear. In other words, they're, they're heart of heart. And so the parables are merciful for those who reject. But for those that are his, he explains. And after the first one, the disciples said, teacher, what does this mean? Teacher, what does it mean? And so he explains it to them. And the reason he does is, Guys, he wants his children to know that if you come to him and you want to know deeper spiritual truth, he's going to tell you. He's never putting it up saying, I'm not going to help you grow. Now, you may not grow at the level you think you should, but again, spiritual truth can be a dangerous thing. And so he's not going to give you more truth than you can handle for where you are. I look back over my life and look back and, and go, wow, how did I believe that back then? Or why did I not understand that back then? Because it, it, it is a powerful thing to understand spiritual truth. And so Jesus revealed it to them. Because it's not just about getting it in your head, as we're going to see today. It's about getting it in your heart and living it out. It's, it's both. And, and what happens is for a lot of people, especially in our culture here, but even in the Jewish culture, it was all about the head. In fact, the scribes were people that were supposed to be protectors of the law, not just protectors in the sense of they wrote it down, but protectors in the sense of that they saw that it was carried out and they were helping you know, guard that good deposit that was given to them. But they didn't. We know that, that they didn't do that. And I think we fall victim to the same thing. But last week, Blake talked about the tares here. And the tares and the wheat, we know that, that wherever God is working, Satan is going to come in there, and God allows it. And we can't understand why He allows it, but He does. And initially, you can't tell the difference between the wheat and the tares. And that's why if you go into churches in America, and every other part of the world really too, but especially here, the larger the church the easier it is, is for tares to be in there and you can't tell them apart. And we talked about that, that you know, I shared last week that you know, when you have a large church, nothing wrong with large churches except it's a lot easier for tares to, st uh, to hide and, and not be found out in those kind of churches. When you have a smaller church, they stick out pretty quick. And, and because it's, there's more conducive relationships in that smaller church like the difference between New York City and Meridian, Mississippi <laughs> seriously have you ever thought about that? if you go to New York City, for you people who've been there you can get tucked away in that big city but you go to Meridian, Mississippi town of about 30,000 you're going to stand out like a sore thumb if you're not from there and so that's what happens in the churches too. And that's why if you look throughout time, what did Jesus do? Even go back to look at when Jesus walked the earth. He was never about the big crowds. He was about building into a small group of guys so that those guys, he always built deep. And that's why these pragmatic methods in churches sometimes are dangerous because Jesus always went deep and God is the one that grows the breadth. Our focus should be on depth. And it should be that way in our relationships with people as we take them uh, through discipleship as well. Let God worry about the number of people 
that he exposes you to. You take the people that he does and go deep with them. So in this passage today, he goes through and he gives more parables about the kingdom. He talks more about judgment. He talks about the responsibility for us to share the gospel. And then we see at the end of the chapter, again, the rejection of the gospel in his own hometown of Nazareth. So there's four things that God reveals in this. I'm going to tell you, and then we're going to look at it. We're going to read it, and then come back and, and kind of look at each one. The first one is he reveals the surpassing value of receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ in these first two parables, the treasure and the pearl. The surpassing value of receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the second parable, he talks about the net, the dragnet that goes and brings in both kinds of fish, and he reveals the serious accountability for rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you have the surpassing value of receiving, but then he, again, reminds people of this serious accountability of rejecting the gospel. And then he goes into this uh, parable of the householder, the guy in charge of the house, and he talks about the, res- the significant responsibility for sharing the gospel that I think sometimes we miss out on. So he reveals the significant responsibility. Oh, it's significant, and we're not exempt from it. There's no exemption from anybody sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't say, well, I wasn't trained. If you're a believer, you're trained. Period. Plain and simple. If you're a believer, you have everything that you need to be able to be a witness of Jesus Christ. And lastly, he reveals the satanic heresy in humanizing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, that's what Satan does. And we see that in Jesus' hometown when he goes back. There's cults that do that today. Oh, he wasn't God. And and so we're going to look at what they did there. So, Let's read this passage. Let's start with a parable of the treasure in chapter 13, starting in verse 44. And we're going to read all the way down and we'll come back and look at each one of these. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. Now when it was full, men drew it ashore and they sat down and they sorted the good into containers, but they threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteousness or from the righteous. And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from them, or he went away from there. And coming to his home, town he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and they said where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works is not this the carpenter's son is not his mother called mary and are not his brothers james and joseph and simon and judas and are not all his sisters with us 
Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. May God bless his word. The parable of the hidden treasure. I want you to notice something in verse 44. It's like a treasure hidden. Now, again, you don't want to make too much about analogies because the primary point of this parable and even the one following it, the pearl, is the surpassing value. The surpassing value of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I would hope that there's nobody in here who would say, you know what, I want the gospel, but I won't give this up. I would hope that all of us would be to that point. But the sad reality is every day we make choices in our life that convey to people a diminishing of the value of the gospel in our life. And it's by the way we live our life. It's the fact that we don't prioritize these things of God. I mean, and people go, well, that's not realistic, Doug. I mean, I'm I'm not a preacher. You don't have to be a preacher. I know people that have made the gospel of Jesus Christ, the surpassing value to them over everything else. Who They worked on Wall Street. They, they were doctors. They were in other, other areas of career field. They didn't, weren't career missionaries. Well, they were career missionaries. They were just career missionaries out in the marketplace. And, and there's this idea that to be fully devoted to Christ... And to have the gospel have a surpassing value over everything else in your life that you have to put on a collar and walk around with a Bible in your hand. That's what people think, and you don't. I want you to think about your own life for a second. When you talk about the surpassing value of the gospel, does it really have its proper place in your life? In other words, if everything was gone in your life, your wife, your kids, like Job, your money, everything wiped out tomorrow, would you still say, Lord, I praise you. I praise you. Or would you say, I don't believe in God anymore. You see, the rubber meets the road when you really start to think, okay, God, is He real or is He not real? If He's real, is my life going to look like I want it to look on earth? Or am I going to understand and trust that His plan is unfolding and wherever He takes me, I trust Him because He loves me. And His love is not based on the amount of things He brings into your life. His love is based on the fact that He allowed His Son to die on a cross for us. That is His surpassing love for us. That is the surpassing value of everything that He died so that we would be in relationship with the Creator God forever and ever and ever. And our life on earth is so brief and so short, and the enemy does everything he does to diminish the value of the gospel in our life. Now, let's be honest. Does it have its proper place in our life? For most of us, it doesn't. But it doesn't have to remain like that. See, what what happens when we become aware of things like that in our life, we confess it. We say, God... I'm so sorry. I keep allowing other things to diminish the value of the gospel. I don't want that. I want this, Lord, to be the surpassing priority of everything in my life. I want it to show in every realm of my life. Because I value this so much. Listen, 
when you think about certain people, think about Michael Jordan. What pops into your head? Basketball. It, it, it pops into your head. You think about Tom Brady. Football. You, whoever it is, when, when these guys, that is a surpassing value for them. They poured their whole life into that realm because it was great importance to them. They loved it. And, and what he's saying in this parable, is, listen, it's like a treasure. You know back in Matthew it says what? Where's your, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is, right? Where your treasure is is where your heart is. And he says this treasure is hidden in a field which a man found. He found it. just stumbled on it. But see, what happens back in that day, if you had something on your property, a treasure, you know whose treasure it was? It was the owner of the field. And so the guy in this little parable knew, so he goes and sells everything so that he can own the field so he has the treasure. And he's saying that that was the surpassing value for that man, that he wanted that more than anything else. I think too often we don't count the cost of following Christ. People, they treat it so nonchalantly. You watch, go look at some old Billy Graham crusades. See Billy preaching the gospel. People be bopping down the aisles and they're laughing or smiling and acting like, you know what? They're acting like they're at a rock concert or something walking down. Do you think they really understand that they have offended an almighty God? And that almighty God sent His Son to die, to be crucified, to be beaten on their behalf when they had that kind of mentality. And, and people, I, I've had these conversations with guys before, and they, they say, well, everybody feels differently. You know, we all have different personalities. And I, if, it doesn't matter your personality. If you back out of your driveway over your neighbor's child, I don't care what kind of personality you have, you're going to be deeply wounded and upset that you did that. Because an innocent child died. And Jesus was the Son of God with no sin. No need to die. And He died for us. The treasure was found. The guy just stumbled on it. Oh, the truth is, he wasn't searching for the treasure. The woman at the well wasn't searching for the treasure either. She was just going to the well to get water at a time of day when nobody else was there because she couldn't be seen because she'd been married five times. She'd been shunned by the community. So she goes at a time when nobody's there and what did the treasure came into her life. She stumbled upon it. And when she found it, she went and told all the people in the city and they all came out and said, we see this one and now we believe not because of what you said but because what we've seen it ourselves. Paul, on the road to Damascus, stumbled upon the treasure. He wasn't looking for it. He stumbled upon it. But then he tells about the pearl. The second one says it's like a merchant in search. This is, this is somebody actually looking for a, the perfect pearl. The one of great value. And, and what does he want it for? He doesn't want it to sell it. He wants to keep it. He's, I heard the other day a Mickey Mantle baseball card went for $2.2 million. Do you think that person bought that as an investment? If so, I think it's a terrible investment. I mean, 
Think about that for a second. They spent $2 million, Ray, on a baseball card. That's insane. But for them, it was a treasure. It was worth them buying, giving that money. This person's looking for that perfect pearl. They find it, and they go sell everything to buy it. It's worth giving up everything else. And I think of that person who was searching in the Bible, the eunuch on the road. He was going to Jerusalem. He was looking for the answers. And, and Philip, by the power of the Spirit, goes to meet him. And he, he hears him reading from Isaiah. Do you understand? How can I understand? There's nobody to teach me. And the Spirit gives him. But he was searching. Cornelius was searching too. I think that's why you know, Cornelius, uh, he was good. He cared about God's things. And God came to him and said, hey, you're going to send some guys. So he sent guys to go and they got Peter and they brought him back. And he says, our whole household's here. We're ready to hear whatever you want to tell us. Why? Because he was searching. But he valued it. He didn't care what people thought. You know, in Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 14, it lays out, Paul does in this letter, that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. You've been adopted. You were predestined in love. That all these things God did for us. Can you imagine? We are adopted into the cosmic family of God. I mean, the, the eternal family of God. The God who created the universe, we have access to. Not because of something good we did but simply because of the great treasure of knowing Jesus Christ and what He did in receiving the gift. Receiving. It's not just about knowing in, a, in an intellectual way. It's receiving the gift. That is the treasure. It was so great, Paul says in Philippians. I want to read it. Philippians 3. You know, Paul lays out his long laundry list of qualifications in Philippians 3. But then he says this in verse 7. After, after laying out all these things that he had attained, he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and I may share in His suffering, becoming like Him in death. Then on down in verse 20, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. You know, Paul, Paul says, he uses the word, it's like dung. See, in your translation it may say dung, but I count everything as rubbish. That's what he's talking about. Human excrement. I mean... We hold on to this stuff so much here. Our accomplishments. I love, we had a guy on the radio last week named Leo Wisniewski. Leo and his whole family, they're a family of Penn State, all Americans. Uh, his son Stefan plays for the Philadelphia Eagles. He was on the, the team that 
uh, won the Super Bowl. And um, his brother, uh, Steve, was an 11-year All-Pro. Had him on the radio last week. You know what he does? He, he, he's got this thing called Locking Arms Men up in Pittsburgh. And God just connected us a week ago. So I called him and said, hey, Leo, would you be on the radio? He goes, sure. So I'm, I'm, I'm talking to him, and we, you know, I asked him, I said, Leo, what's, what's more awesome, playing in the NFL or having a son win the Super Bowl and watching him? He said, you know, Doug, the, the great thing is when, and he said this in an article that was written, and somebody else asked him that question, I love nothing more than knowing that my son loves the Lord and he married a woman that loves the Lord. Now that, that speaks volumes. He values that. And when you talk to Leo, do you know the first time I talked to him, I talked to him for 45 minutes on the phone. He never once told me he played in the NFL. I didn't even know he played in the NFL. He never brought that up. Because to him, that was like human excrement compared to knowing Christ. When you have the Gospel, guys, what value does it have in your life? Is it the thing that drives you? Because so often it's all these other accomplishments. I was with a guy not too long ago and he's telling me, yeah, I helped do this. And he's just telling me all these things. He's a believer and I'm just like, wow, it's kind of interesting. And I said, I do the same thing. And, and I know why we do it. We do it to receive some kind of affirmation back. But our value is not based in what we do. It's what He's done for us. That's the beauty of the Gospel. That our, our identity is never tied up in what we accomplish. We're valuable because we're His. And that's what He's saying. I love... i, I got to read this. I'm sorry. We're a long time on this one. But this is, this is really, to me, the crux of what He's saying. The rejection stuff, that it's going to happen. But what we should focus on is the value that He brings. Listen to this in Romans 8. Paul says, What should we say... To these things. If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. (coughs) Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, I think that pretty much sums it up. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not one thing. Once you're His, once you're His, once you're in the family, you don't go out. He won't let you. He's got you. He holds you. Guys, the cosmic God of the universe brings us in. And we spend our time just scrapping 
for little snacks here on earth that don't give us any kind of long-term benefit. I don't care how much money, I don't care how much fame, I don't care how much personal security you think you have. Nothing compares with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus told the people, there's nobody greater than John the Baptist, but the one who's least in the kingdom is greater than him. There's nothing greater than being in the family of God. It's incredible that we believe that. Is it surpassing? If we're not allowing that to be seen in our life, we need to repent. We need to come to God and say, God, please forgive me. Help me to appropriate the, 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 the right attitude about your gospel in my life. Help me to appropriate the right place for Jesus in my life. Forgive me for not. Just keep coming back to the cross every time he serves it. And it happens to me all the time. And I have to come back and say, Lord, I allow this to distract me from the great surpassing value of Jesus. Well, then he goes on and he tells this story of the net. And this dragnet in Matthew 13 he talks about, they had two types of net. They had what was called a surface net, and they had the big dragnet. The big dragnet that the fishermen would throw in, some of them say were huge, and they would just sweep up everything, even on the bottom. So it all gets swept in there, the good fish, the bad fish. And so in this story, it says they drew it up, and it says they separated the good from the bad. And he says, so it will be at the end's age. This sounds a lot like the wheat and the tares, doesn't it? Same kind of story here. And he's talking about the, the accountability of rejecting the gospel. And what's amazing to me is that the, the, the picture here is you've got thorny soil, rocky soil hearers right there with the good soil hearers. They're all together, growing together. Tares and the wheat, all together. It's merciful for God to allow them to dwell together because they keep hearing it over and over. But the problem is with it is there's going to be an accounting one day for those that reject. And you don't hear a lot about hell in our pulpits today or in being taught. It's not a popular subject, obviously. Don't see a lot of books written really about hell. People don't. It's not. People would much rather talk about all the positive things God does, but there is an accountability that comes with knowing the gospel and rejecting the gospel. And uh, Revelation 20, verse 11, makes it very clear that there's going to be an accounting. And in 2011, it says, Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. From His presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, famous, infamous, famous, nobodies, doesn't matter, standing before the throne, books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's pretty clear. Not a lot of ambiguity about that. I love the way uh, Paul or John Bunyan, he was a Puritan writer, describes hell. I kind of I took it out of the old English language a little bit. But he says this in hell. 
You shall have none but a company of damned souls with an innumerable company of devils to keep company with you. While you are in this world, the very thought of the devils appearing to you makes your flesh tremble and your hair ready to stand upright on your head. But oh, what will you do when not only the thought of the devils appearing, but the real society of all the devils of hell will be with you, howling, roaring, and screeching in such a hideous manner that you will even be at your wit's end and ready to run stark mad for anguish and torment. If after 10,000 years an end should come, then there would be comfort. But here is your misery. Here you must be forever. When you see what an innumerable company of howling devils you are among, you shall think this again. This is my portion forever. When you have been in hell so many thousand years as there are stars in the firmament or drops in the sea or sand on the seashore, yet you have to lie there forever. Oh, this one word ever. How will it torment your soul? Guys, I'm going to tell you, it's, a, it's an awful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And there's a significant uh, responsibility for us to share. When we hear that, it should move us to want to share with people. The reason he tells the story of the new and old treasures is because he says to them, have you understood all these things? Remember he told, they said, Lord, teach us. And so he teaches them. So he goes, have you understand? They say, yes, we understand. And here's what he says. <clears throat> Every scribe who has been trained, that word trained there is mathateus. You know what that means? That's the disciple. It means disciple. It's the Greek word for disciple. So it's, it's every scribe, every teacher who has been discipled. You see, there's a difference. The word disciple, remember I told you from Hebrew, it has more than a meaning of just learning. The teacher aspect, scribe means learning, but the disciple is trained in life. It's somebody who's living out the gospel. So when you've got it up here and you're living it out here, there's a responsibility, he says. And he tells this story. It's like a master of a house who brings out the new and the old. In other words, whenever somebody needed something in the house, the master would take care of it. If they needed clothes, they'd give them clothes. If they needed food, they'd give them food. So the master of the house had a responsibility to provide for the people and to pay the bills for the people. That was the responsibility of the master. So what he's saying is, once you've been trained in this, you have the responsibility then to go train other people in this. And so why do only 5% of the people in church tell people about Jesus? Why do even less than that make disciples? I wish you could do a survey of all the pastors of, quote, evangelical churches just in this city and ask them... <coughs> How many people are you discipling personally? Or are you training personally? I think you'd be astounded at the number of people that sit up every week in a pulpit and don't do that. They don't do that. And that's why the people don't do it, because the people follow the leader. Your, your water level is only going to rise to the highest level of the leadership. And so if the leader's not doing it, the people aren't going to do it, whether it's sharing the gospel or whether it's discipling. Training. Acts 1.8 says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. And they were. 
2 Corinthians 5.11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We go out and we share with them. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, you know, keep my pattern of sound teaching. Keep Guard this deposit that you've been entrusted with. And there's a guarding aspect that takes place with it too. The purity of the Gospel. Not allowing people to pervert the Gospel. 2 Timothy 2.2, he says, What you've heard from me, entrust to faithful men. Pass it on. Listen to this. This is, this is not something just in the New Testament. Listen to Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. This is Psalm 78.1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but we will tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord in His might, the wonders that He has done. We're going to tell. I went to the bookstore. I was meeting with a book writing agent up there in Nashville to talk about writing a devotional book. So I go to the Christian bookstore and I say, there's only two devotionals in there for men. I, I, I just bought them both. And I took them back. I started reading them and they're full of garbage. And, and the thing is, there's enough good stuff in there to attract you to want to buy it and it talks about good. But you go into it and you start reading it and I'm going, this is... This is just wrong. It's, I mean, a guy in there says, listen, there's two extremes. This is one. There's two extremes. You've got people that say that, uh, you know, they abuse saying God told them to do this. And then you've got people over here who says the Bible's all you need to know about Jesus. And he says, the Bible's not all you need. I'm like, okay. And he's not talking about the Holy Spirit revealing the Bible. See, there's a difference, guys, between illumination and revelation. Illumination is the Holy Spirit of God revealing the truth of God in His Word to you about who Jesus is, what He's done, and what it means to know Him. Revelation is when God speaks through somebody to give His Word to people. And we don't add anything to this book. And there's a lot of that going on. People saying, this is not enough. May God have mercy on them. Because the Bible makes it very clear. All the curses of this book come on anybody who adds to this. There's a difference between illumination and revelation. We have to guard and we have to teach because we have a responsibility, guys, for sharing the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Why don't we do it? And then finally, he goes right out of that and he's getting ready to transition here. And he goes back into the narrative. He was teaching on the parables. Now he goes into a narrative at the end of the chapter. And he goes back to the very place. Remember where he started in Nazareth? He stands up. He declares that truth and says, today this has been fulfilled in your presence. And what? They, they want to kill him. He goes back to his synagogue, the synagogue he grew up in, the synagogue his family attends. The syn- and, and, and notice, it doesn't say his synagogue. Matthew says their synagogue. He goes back into their synagogue because you know what they do? They humanize Jesus right here. They did the very thing where the, the Pharisees blasphemed Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus. And they said, this is just the guy who lived with Mary and his 
you know, his brothers and his sisters. He's a human guy. But notice, in the, and it says, they were astonished. Where did he get this wisdom and the mighty works? They didn't deny the works. They didn't deny the teaching. They just humanized him. That's all they did. Why did they do that? Because Satan, Satan wants to diminish the deity of Jesus. He was just a man. You know what the word offended is down there? It says, as they took offense, that word is scandalized. It's scandalizo. It's scandalized. They, they, they took offense. It was a scandal. This guy is claiming to be God, and he's just a man. This is just a book. It's like any other book. That's just coincidence. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says the natural man doesn't understand. The natural man, the man who's in the flesh, he sees this stuff, he reads the Bible, I can't understand it. It's just, you know what? It doesn't make any sense to me. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says the reason it doesn't make sense is because Satan blinds the eyes. Satan is the one spreading the deception. John 1, 9, 11, Jesus came to his own. And what did they do? They rejected him. They rejected him. He goes back to Nazareth one more time. Why? That's where he grew up. That's where he grew up. He wanted to go back there, and he goes back, and they reject him. And it says that because of their unbelief, he did no mighty works there. They humanized Him. So what does all this mean for you and me? Well, we, as we leave today, think of two questions for yourself. What value, not up here in your head, I'm talking in reality, what value does Jesus have in your life on a practical, everyday basis? And listen, the focus, guys, is not on what we give up. Understand that. The focus is on what you gain. Anders, I'm going to pick on you for a second. If you could win the U.S. Open, the Masters, the TPC, all in one year, it'd be worth a lot to you, wouldn't it, to do that? Just as a golfer, I mean, it's something that you've spent a lifetime doing. That'd be pretty much the pinnacle. If you could win those three, or the Grand Slam, all of them, the, and uh, the British Open, win them all in one year, I know people that, yeah, yeah, people would sell their soul to do that. Jesus is worth more than that. He's worth more. He's worth more than anything. So what value does it have? Then have we taken our responsibility to share seriously? Two questions that really we've got to wrestle with, guys, as we walk out of here. Have we taken our responsibility to share? Because there are people, guys, that need to hear the good news. And, and the, the sharing not only gives them the good news, but it also gives people, it's the mercy of God, even people that reject, to hear it, even though they're going to reject it. Pretty sobering, but it's good news. It is good news. And so, uh, Ray, do you mind closing us in prayer? Do you mind? <coughs>